Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hang on, yeah, slow down, I think this is it. Shall I um, jump out and open the gate? Does it look like there's a bell? Oh my goodness, that's her. The first time we saw Marie Farrell, she was hurrying down her driveway to open the gate for us. It was raining, she was dodging puddles and trying not to get wet. Hi. It felt odd to be casually greeting this woman we'd spent three years trying to track down. We'd been trying to flesh out a real person from statements and court testimony. And here she was. Drink water. Coffee. I love a glass of water, actually. Lovely house. Marie now lives in a country valley in a house built by her husband, Chris, hundreds of miles from West Cork. She says when they moved out here, they were specifically looking for a place in the middle of nowhere. We don't have contact with anybody. We don't even know who our neighbours are. This strange arrangement, like so much in Marie's life over the past 20 years, is down to her involvement in the Sophie Toscan de Plantier murder investigation. Specifically, down to her decision in 2005, a year and a half after going under oath at the libel trial, to contact Ian Bailey's solicitor and tell him that her evidence against Ian was trumped up complete fiction, that the man in the long black coat wasn't Ian Bailey, that the guards just blackmailed her into saying that it was, and that when Marie threatened to go public with the truth, the guards told her she'd never have another day's peace in Skull. I'm actually afraid of the guards. If I'm driving along the road and I see a checkpoint, a random checkpoint, and I start getting palpitations and panicking, I, I would be afraid of the guardy because I know what they're capable of. Eventually, Marie says she convinced herself to do the right thing, but people in West Cork didn't see it as the right thing. Because I think that they want Ian Bailey to be guilty. A lot of people do want him to be guilty. People in Skull and West Cork do not like me. Marie says she found herself totally alone. The people think I'm some sort of, like, you know, a nutcase, that I made all this up. Um, that I don't know what's true and what's not true. and well, I just think people think that I am mentally unstable. But do you think that? No. <laughs> I know what happened. I lived through it. This is West Cork, an Audible original series. I'm Jennifer Ford. I'm Sam Bungie, and this is episode 11, Enemy Number One.
Back in 2004, after the libel trial, things looked black for Ian. A parade of people from West Cork had testified against him under oath. Then the judge had delivered a damning verdict and Ian had fled the country. He stayed in London until the money ran out, which ended up being just a few weeks. Welcome back. You're listening to the news at one. Several papers report today that freelance journalist Ian Bailey has now returned to the West Cork village of Skull. The headlines were ferocious. Brute Bailey. Get the hell out of here, Bailey. And Beast Bailey crawls back home. Remember, the guards had hoped the libel trial would reignite the case against Ian. They'd sent a whole new file with the Cork transcripts to the Director of Public Prosecutions, the DPP, urging him to press charges. But amid growing criticism in the press, the DPP once again refused. What was going on? When the media, the public, and the guards seemed so convinced of Ian Bailey's guilt, why was the DPP not on board? He didn't make his reasons public at the time, but it turns out he had problems with the case all along. My name is James Hamilton. I was Director of Public Prosecutions between 1999 and 2011. When James Hamilton took up the post as DPP, the Sophie Toscantiplantier investigation had been going on for two years. The Garda file had featured a dire warning about the danger they claimed Ian Bailey presented to West Cork, the sense of urgency they felt to charge him. Hamilton's predecessor wasn't so sure and had been asking the guards questions about various aspects of the file, trying to get them to bolster their case but he was yet to make a final decision. Hamilton told us that when he took up the post, the case had become something of a hot potato. He set about reviewing the file, the questionnaires, the interviews, the maps and photographs, all the findings about the murder. Finally, in 2001, after two years, Hamilton made a decision that a prosecution against Ian Bailey was not warranted by the evidence. Hamilton didn't want to go into details about the case with us, For that, he referred us to the report on why he wouldn't be charging Ian with murder. And it's an extraordinary report for a couple of reasons. One, because of its sheer size. Reports like this usually run to a page or two. This one is 44 pages long. Secondly, reports are usually strictly confidential, between the DPP and the guards. But for reasons we'll come back to, in 2010, this report was leaked. I mean, that that document was a document I, I... Stand over. I'd still stand over. Hamilton told us that in order to charge someone, he has to believe there's a reasonable chance of conviction. So he's thinking about how everything's going to play in front of a jury. But you also have to have sufficient evidence. The police will tend to overstate their case compared to the prosecutor's estimation of it. Simply the way... It's human Yeah, exactly. They, they, will, they will concentrate on the stronger points and they will gloss over the weaker points and... They want to have solved the case and they want a successful outcome. Reading through the report, it's clear that the DPP just didn't think the guards had it. That however compelling the guards thought the evidence was against Ian, they hadn't put together a case that would stand up in court. The DPP's assessment of the statements is that Ian had a plausible and consistent explanation for the scratches on his hands and arms. The alleged confessions to people in West Cork they could be explained away as dark jokes. It says that Ian's domestic violence, while unfortunate, couldn't be used in court as what's known as similar fact evidence, as in because this, then that. And remember the bonfire at the studio house? 
The DPP reasons, if Jules and Ian were lying about not having a bonfire after the murder, it didn't prove that Ian had burned evidence, only that it was possible. The DPP didn't think there was a strong argument that Ian had been evasive about how well he knew Sophie. As for Sophie's colleague, who remembered she had spoken to him about a writer from Ireland named Owen Bailey, the name Ian used to go by, the DPP said the statement contained hearsay, evidence that wouldn't play in court. Another big headache for the guards was the fact that they arrested Jules. Like Ian, Jules had been arrested for murder, but then never questioned about her involvement. The DPP said it appeared to make her arrest unlawful, which would mean that anything they got from her that day would be inadmissible in court. And there was a knock-on problem with that. The guards used things they'd learned from Jules in the arrest to interrogate Ian when he was in custody, which was when Ian admitted to getting up on the night of the murder. A court might see that evidence as fruit of the poison tree, as in Jules's unlawful arrest was the poison tree, Ian's admission was the fruit. But beyond the evidence, the report is concerned about something more fundamental, witness credibility. There are hints all through the report that the DPP suspects foul play, perhaps by witnesses in the case or by the guards themselves. I mean, there, there's always a risk that witnesses are contaminated. They've heard all sorts of rumours about what somebody might have done or something else. And it's suggested to them that certain things might be significant if they could remember them and so on. Then they may miraculously remember things that, that, that never actually happened. And the DPP thought that in the Sophie investigation, this got out of hand. When the guards began portraying Ian as a ruthless and unrestrained killer, the report read, Once Ian Bailey was believed by the public, particularly in the local area, to be responsible for the murder, the fear thereby engendered was bound to create a climate in which witnesses became suggestible. The DPP also found that certain witnesses might have had reason to ingratiate themselves with the guards by offering statements against Ian. One guy was awaiting sentencing on a crime. Another couple's son had been caught with drugs. These statements weren't central to the case. They're not aspects of the case we've talked about, but to the DPP, they showed a worrying pattern. He was concerned about the lengths the guards seemed prepared to go to to secure evidence against Ian. Like with Martin Graham, the informant. The report found that on the balance of probability, the guards were supplying him with hash and concluded... Such investigative practices are clearly unsafe, to say the least. And most problematic of all, the central witness, Marie Farrell. Hamilton never met Marie Farrell. The DPP doesn't meet witnesses. In fact, Marie hadn't been named in the press coverage, and it wasn't until the libel trial that she went public, with some of the most compelling evidence of the whole trial. Those of you who followed the case closely will remember that Marie Farrell was the shopkeeper whose testimony was a key factor in the outcome of the case. And Marie Farrell joins me now on the line. Marie, good morning. Good morning, Pat. Uh, you actually saw Ian Bailey a mile from Sophie's home the night she was murdered. I did, yes. And what exactly did you see? Um, I was driving home after being out for the evening and um, um, I just uh, picked up this man in the headlights of my car staggering along the road. Mm -hmm. uh, he just appeared to be drunk. Um, he was staggering and sort of waving his hands around. Everybody knows now what you saw. Yeah, because you've and, yeah. sworn in court as to what you saw. In Hamilton's report, there's an entire section titled Unreliability of Marie Farrell. In person to the judge at the libel trial, 
Marie had been convincing, but on paper to Hamilton, her evidence was all over the place. Marie's first statement described a man who, frankly, didn't sound much like Ian at all. Medium height, slim and tanned. But as her statements progressed, like in a flipbook animation, the man in the black coat morphed into someone who looked just like the guard's prime suspect. Tall, powerfully built, pale and unshaven. Again, all Hamilton had to go by was what was in the guard's file. And taken altogether, Marie's statements told a strange, confusing story. One the DPP at his desk, miles from West Cork, couldn't hope to fully understand. But however shocking Marie's massive reversal was to the rest of the country, you get the impression that Hamilton wasn't exactly bowled over in shock by what Marie was now telling us. Well, I know it wasn't Ian Bailey I saw on the road, but I don't know who killed Sophie. Over three days, we sat with Marie in her front living room, trying to understand how someone gets themselves into this kind of a pickle. If I'd never made that phone call on Christmas Day, life would be different. If only I didn't go to court that day, if only I didn't go out that night, if only I didn't ring the guards. Life would be different, so different. Marie says she heard about the murder just like everyone else. It was the 23rd of December and uh, some people were saying that a woman's body had been found on the road. She heard the murder had happened out in Tormore. Marie had driven past there on the coast road the previous night, so she started to wonder. Did I see or hear anything coming along that road? And then, you know, I had seen a man on the road as I was driving about two o'clock in the morning. Marie started piecing things together. She remembered seeing this man two more times that weekend. She saw Sophie's picture in the paper and realised that Sophie had been in her shop when she'd noticed this man across the road. So Marie called the guards. And I told them about the man outside the shop and that I'd seen the man on the road on the 22nd when I was going to Cork. The station officer took a memo and a few days later, a local guard called into Marie's shop to take down a statement. But then the guards kept returning to Marie about her sightings. She says it was like the guards had someone in mind and they kept nudging her to change things. I said, you know, I can't tell you, was he five foot ten or five? I don't know because I wouldn't be great at guessing that. But I said, he's no taller than Chris. And he said, well, would he be my height? And I said, no, not quite. I said, so maybe around five eight or five ten. And he said, well, we'll round it up a bit and we'll say five eleven. And that's how the height thing started. And then they came back sometime later and they told me that I misjudged his height because he was standing across the road and our shop was sort of elevated a bit. There was some steps up and said because I was standing higher than he was across the road that he was actually way taller than I thought he was. And what do you think about that? The guards were saying it, so I thought, well, maybe, but I still never said that he was six foot or more. Meanwhile, Marie wasn't telling the guards the full story. She hadn't told them about seeing this man near the scene of the crime on the coast road on the night of the murder. She felt this sighting was important, probably more important than the others. But Marie shouldn't have been anywhere near the area that night. She told her husband she was going to see a girlfriend, but in fact was out driving with an ex-lover. So in the end, Marie hit on a compromise. That she'd call and tell the guards about this third sighting, but she'd give a fake name and she'd call from a public phone booth. I don't know. I have a sister, Fiona, but that wasn't the reason. But I just, it was a name that, you know, 
<laughs> totally not like my name anyway. Marie hoped that the guards wouldn't set too much store by her anonymous call. She figured lots of other people would have reported sightings of this man over the weekend. This would just help them round out the picture. But the guards were very interested. They asked Fiona to come into the station. And I didn't turn up. And I, I don't think I had any intentions of turning up. And remember, when she didn't turn up, they launched an appeal for her to come forward on national TV. The first time I sort of got worried about it was when they appealed on the primetime program for this woman to contact them again. Why did that worry you? Um, I don't know, I just got a bit anxious about it. It just, it just seems bigger now. Yeah. Because it's on TV. Yeah. And, and, and then, that was... That was what everyone was talking about the next day in Skull, was who is this person that they're appealing for? Who can that be? And I was listening to this and I thought, oh. Then in the meantime, I was in Skullgard, the station, getting form signed for a passport. And I saw this little note taped to the desk, if fi- protoc- or procedure if Fiona calls. And it was one keeper talking and I thought, oh, Jesus. This is. Uh, yeah, and I thought, yeah, this is this might be getting a bit, you know. This is more now important than I thought it was. This sighting. After the crime line show, Marie slipped up by calling the guards from home in Skull, and the guards traced that call. A few days after that, a guard showed up at her shop. It was the same guard Marie had already been giving statements to, so at first she didn't realise her cover had been blown. The guard then told Marie there were a few boys down at the station that wanted a word with her. And I said, for what? And uh, he said, um, he said, we know you're Fiona. I nearly died. I did. I thought, oh. The only thing I could think about was Chris is going to kill me. And he said, don't you worry now, he won't have to know and I would just talk to these boys. That was it. Among these boys was Detective Jim Fitzgerald, the detective who'd been working with Martin Graham, the witness turned double agent. Marie had never met Detective Fitzgerald before. He was so nice and he was so chatty. And and he said, you know, look, there'll never have to be another word about this. he just, we know it was that fecker out there, that English fucker killed that woman and the death he gave her. And he said, and if you listen to her parents screaming in the morgue on Christmas morning, he said, you know, anybody would want to do what they could to help. So <laughs> they said it wasn't going to go any further. You know, just they knew it was Ian Bailey and I there was nobody else, they said, on the road that night. So, you know, you just sign this to say it was him on the road. And that's it. We don't have to be talking to Chris and that'll be the end of it. We won't need anything else from you. There's going to be no court case. I was never going to be called as a witness for a court case or anything like that. So and I believed him. I thought, this is it. This is the end of it. And he said, you know, we'll just write out two lines there now. Marie says she wanted it all to go away, so she gave the guards what they needed. 
She told them that the man she saw was Ian, placing him near Sophie's house on the night of the murder. When Marie learned that Ian had been arrested and released, she says she thought that would be the end of it, that the guards were dropping the case against him. Instead, they came back to her. They needed to build a better case, and whether she liked it or not, Marie Farrell was going to help them. Over the next few months, it was like I had two lives. It was my life involved with the guards, and then there was my life at home that you're trying to keep normal. Marie was spending so much time with the guards that her husband Chris got suspicious and confronted her. She finally came clean about being out with another man on the night of the murder and about being a witness for the guards. She says Chris told her to walk away, not to have anything more to do with the guards. But she was in so deep then, Chris didn't realise the amount of statements that had been signed that weren't true at all. I had signed... I had gone along with the guards. I had gone along with this setting up of Ian Bailey. How did you... Why did you go along with... Why did you start... I, that's... I don't know. I can't explain that. I believed Jim Fitzgerald. I believed that Ian Bailey had killed her. And did you have a sense of why? Like, did you, like, did no, they, no, not really. Um, no, they told me that he was, he was infatuated with her and he went up there to, and when she wouldn't let him in, he killed her. And I know it sounds, it's strange to say it, but you do feel you're important and you're help, really helping in this big inquiry and you've, the guard, they've been really nice to you and, you know, they, they need you to give them information or they need you to do this or to say this and, you know, like Jim Fitzgerald all of a sudden, within a matter of a couple of weeks, was like my best friend uh, and he would tell me everything that was going on with the case and so it was like I was in the loop. At trial, Marie claimed the guards were doing all sorts of things to keep her sweet that they gave her a mobile phone and got her off fines for driving offences. The guards admitted to some of this in court. Detective Dermot Dwyer testified he'd requested that another guard leave them for the time being in regards to the motoring fines. And Detective Fitzgerald said he helped Marie when a neighbour complained to the guards that he'd been assaulted by her husband, Chris. Fitzgerald told the court she was assisting in a murder investigation. One would always have to look at the bigger picture. You know, just at that stage, I thought we were really good friends. And I thought, this is great. Really, really made me feel, you know, geez, you know, I can get away with all of this. And Do you feel bad about it now? Please? Yeah, I feel like, how stupid. You know, I always thought that I was this intelligent person. And, you know, how did I get drawn in there? I was totally naive. And if I could go back 20 years, I'd give myself a slap and say, for God's sake. This normal, boring life you have is going to be way better than being sucked into this life, thinking you're helping Gerthi. Things went on like this for years, Marie says. She convinced herself it had all blown over and she could get back to her normal life. Then the guards would contact her again. For example, it had been months since she'd heard anything, when one evening she got a knock on the door. It was a man delivering summons to appear at the libel trial. She didn't want to go, but she says the guards told her she'd be brought there in handcuffs if she refused. Detective Dermot Dwyer personally drove Marie to the courthouse to make sure that she testified. 
Marie says he told her to stick to the story. Detective Dwyer testified that he said nothing about handcuffs and that he just told her to go and tell the truth. Her obvious reluctance on the stand only made her story play better in court. Even the judge assumed it was because she was so scared of Ian. Marie remembers going to the courthouse to hear the judgment against Ian. And I remember being standing outside the court and he came out and I thought, oh, he looks broken and that's not fair. And then I looked over and Jim Fitzgerald and some other guard were standing there. And I thought, do you know, they could do anything to anybody. And I felt sorry for Ian Bailey. And it was always in my head after that. Or, or, you know, to tell the truth. But she didn't. Instead, after the libel trial, she went to the press, repeating her testimony and making new claims about Ian. Maybe three weeks ago, um, Ian Bailey started parking outside my house. Well, I saw him there one day, uh, about half seven in the morning. Um, a few days before that, he stopped me on the road and he told me that he was representing himself at his next case. His exact words were, uh, the next time I will represent myself and then I will cross-examine you. And he laughed and drove away. And, and I mean, w was it that you felt you afraid as a result of this? Yeah, I do. I feel very afraid. Marie did a whole bunch of interviews. For someone who said they'd just been dragged to testify at trial, it just seems crazy that Marie would do all this. But she says the guards were telling her they needed to keep up the pressure on Ian. It was always, you know, to keep this thing out there in the public domain that Ian Bailey was dangerous because he said if that was happening, then they could keep going back to the DPP and put pressure on him to bring charges against Ian Bailey. To kind of keep the pressure up. Yeah, yeah. Marie said when she told one detective, Detective Morris Walsh, that she'd rather go public with the truth than continue the lie. He told her that she couldn't go against the guards and get away with it. When Marie told him they'd sell their house and move away, she said he told her it didn't matter where they went in the country, they'd never have peace. In court, the detective would deny he ever said this. So then what about Ian's threats against Marie? Those threats she'd talked about both at trial under oath and on national radio. Was any of that true? She said most of it was made up, but some of it might have been true. She said it's hard to keep it all straight. I can't remember. If when you say things, sometimes, you know, things come back, but like, did, and then I'm thinking, did that happen or was that just something else in a statement? And sometimes you, then you're trying to think, well, did that happen or was that made up? And it's so long ago as well. But like and which part is the story and yeah. which part is true. Yeah. Which is kind of how Marie eventually got caught out. Concocted stories, they're never so good that they, that they hold water airtight. This is Frank Buttimer. Buttimer is one of Ireland's best-known solicitors. And Buttimer's story with this case began just after the libel trial. After dropping Ian at the airport to fly to London, Ian's partner Jules drove straight to Buttimer's house in Cork to give him Ian's files on the case and plead for help. She'd gone to the right guy. This was years before the leaked DPP report made public James Hamilton's concerns about the case. But Buttimer had his own suspicions. I would see whatever was going on in his case from time to time, or you'd read about him in the paper or something, and I knew that this was bullshit. 
Bassema took on the case pro bono. So it started with not a scrap of forensic evidence. There was not any scintilla of forensic link between Mr. Bailey, who was on the one version of the event, this completely drunken guy who gets so drunk that he kind of rambles across the country in some unpremeditated fashion to meet this poor lady, to engage with her in some fashion which is unexplained, and that he murders her brutally under the influence of alcohol, and he's so bloody smart that he's able to tidy up an untidyable crime scene. How in the hell could that be? I mean, it's just, just beggar's belief that that could be achieved. To Batimer, it was clear. His client had been targeted for who he was, and not for anything that he'd done. And because he was a fish out of water, he's an easy target, and he's a classic fit-up candidate. He might have been any nationality, but he's not one of us. And that is a very, very useful tool for the police to fit the crime around somebody because he's an outsider. No people. No one there to mind him. And that's what I thought when I met the guy. And his first task was to figure out Marie Farrell. She was chief liar, enemy number one. Batima called the guards to ask exactly when Marie said Ian had been outside her house making threats. And when he checked the date, he realised Ian wasn't even in Skull on that day. He'd been in the city with him. Ian had receipts to prove it. So there was no way Marie was telling the truth. Batima sent Marie a letter, threatening to sue unless she stopped falsely accusing his client. The claims of intimidation suddenly dried up. Then one day in April 2005, Batima got a call from a softly spoken woman. And I'm sitting in this very office where we're speaking now, and I'm hearing this, and I'm just going, Jesus Christ, what's this about? She says, I've been telling a pack of lies. It was all bullshit. So we're just um, speeding into court. It's uh, quarter past 12, and we're heading for a meeting two o'clock in the offices of Frank Buttermer at 16 Washington Street. Ian's recording himself during a road trip up to Buttermer's office, part of that audio diary we heard before. After Marie's phone call, they began working on appealing the verdict in the libel trial. Ian spent time with Buttermer, poring over details of the investigation, building a meticulous case. Uh, we were very unprepared on the last occasion, and we are now very prepared. The Ian in these audio diaries, after Marie has changed her story, is totally different from the man in those written diaries from the 90s that were seized and read out in court. Now Ian had a new perspective and a new look. He ditched the cape and the staff of Ian the poet and started wearing suits and carrying his leather satchel of legal papers. He put together the fancy clothes by raiding West Cork's second-hand clothing stores. I've just sorted out my wardrobe, and I have a suit for every day of the week, and I have between 30 and 40 shirts, 50 silk ties, half a dozen scarves, and I can't wait actually to get into some really nice clothes. It's just the shoes. Um, Thursday evening, we just got back from Cork, uh, it would make it Thursday, just for the record, Thursday the 8th. Uh, Jules is on fine form, we're both on fine form, we both look as though we've walked out, out of a, some sort of costume catalogue or a, some sort of catwalk. Uh, although this isn't a fashion show, it is a very important component of this, because as we know, a perception, apparently, is everything. 
The hearing only ran for three days before the two sides came to a deal, where Ian would drop the lawsuit against the newspapers. And in exchange, Ian no longer had to cover the costs of the original libel trial. Ian took it as a victory. Inspired by his own case, Ian applied to get a law degree. And I'm just preparing to go up to Cork for um, fate would have it that I was chosen to uh, be uh, accepted into the hallowed halls of academia. And um, thus I go. Not only would Ian graduate, he'd go on to receive two more degrees, including a master's of law. He'd write a thesis titled Policing the Police, Garter Accountability in Ireland. And he'd decide on his next move, to take on the guards in court. The guards' former star witness, Marie Farrell, would become Ian's star witness against them. There were still holes in Marie's story, unanswered questions. Like, for instance, who was she out driving with on the night of the murder? But Ian figured they wouldn't matter. To him, it seemed simple. Marie's evidence was the Jenga piece that had been holding the guards' case up, and now Ian had it in his hand. Suing the guards was a bold plan. Of course, he had no idea it would take seven years until the case made it to court. But back on the morning after the verdict in the libel trial appeal, while Ian was waiting in the sun for a bus back to West Cork, life must have felt more full of promise than it had for a long, long time. So it's a beautiful, crisp, golden Sunday morning and I'm in the Cork bus station and I'm just about to travel down to uh, West Cork to be reunited with my uh, steadfast lover, Miss Jules Scatton Thomas, the Welsh artist. And uh, it's, uh, it's quite amazing, life is, um, life is beautiful. West Cork is an Audible original production. Written and produced by Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie. Produced and sound designed by Kristen Muller, Alex Trajano, Robin Wise and Paul Schneider. Our theme music was composed by Shani Avaram. Our recording engineer is Sean Moho. West Cork is edited by Mike Olive. Our fact checker is Christine Baird. And Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom are the executive producers. This is Audible. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.